0: And it is another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether you're listening live over at Joy620 or you're listening to the podcast at InvestingHope.com or you're listening uh, to Google Play or iTunes, wherever podcasts are found, you can find this show. And so what we're going to do today is we've got a number of things to talk about. There's A, a lot has happened in the news uh, in terms of things happening in Washington, things happening around the country, and, and really just the, the last – The last segment today, we're going to look at how do we – David French wrote a great piece about how we as pro-lifers can operate and and kind of continue to see uh, success within a Biden administration. And So what does that look like? There's been a lot of uh, wringing of the hands and and frustration because – Maybe your your uh, candidate didn't win, and so what does that mean? We're going to see a lot of things rolled back. We're going to see executive order after executive order, and, and and that's what happens. And we talked about this last week. When you when you pass executive orders, don't be surprised when the next guy comes in and reverses everything that you did. And that's what we're seeing. And so how do how do we as pro-lifers kind of operate in that in that world? And so we're going to hit that last segment. But the first segment, we're going to look at uh, some some again nothing surprising here, but the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Bill that was brought up in Washington, of course, was defeated and blocked by the Democrats. That's not a surprise. We're going to talk about that. And we're also going to look at a number of other things that, that are going on that I think is important uh, for us to to discuss. So, again, thanks for listening. Uh, hopefully that today will be fruitful and productive. Before I get into anything, I do want to say thanks to uh, all the churches that have allowed us to come out over the last uh month and a half as we have we visited with Calvary Baptist Calvary Chapel Black Oak Heights Baptist uh we were with uh Hardin Valley Free Will Baptist this past Saturday we've been with Seventh Day Christian Assembly uh it's just been a blast West Park Baptist Church uh not this weekend but next weekend I'll be at my home church of Shoreline Church speaking and then in a few weeks we'll be over at Fountain City Church Talking about hope and life, and so just grateful for the opportunity. Y'all, y'all just continue to show up and blow us away uh, with your with your support uh, financially, with your prayers, with your with volunteering, all of that. And, and we just really could not do the work uh, that we get to do with, without you. And so we thank you for that. So now let's dive into what has happened in D.C. And this is one that again that doesn't surprise me, but it should concern us uh, at least a little bit. Uh, for the third year in a row, <clears throat> again, that, that's why it shouldn't surprise us. For the third year in a row, Senate Democrats have blocked a bill that would require doctors to care for newborn infants who survive an attempted abortion procedure. Late Thursday night of last week, the Senate voted on an amendment from Senator Ben Sass in Nebraska containing his Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, which he introduced each year since 2019. Every time the legislation has come to the floor, it has received uniform support from Republicans as well as a few votes from Democrats because the GOP has not had a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. And this year, because Democrats hold a razor-thin Senate majority, the bill has never overcome the opposition of most Senate Democrats. This year's vote was no exception. Every Republican voted in favor of the bill, including Alaska's Lisa Murkowski, who missed last year's vote. Two Democratic senators, West Virginia Joe Manson, Manson, or Manchin, and Pennsylvania's Bob Casey Jr. also voted to support it. But the rest of the Democratic caucus voted against it, blocking the Born Alive bill for the third year in a row. Because the vote took place so early this session during a quick series of votes all in one evening, there was less lead-up time and therefore less debate over the bill than there had been in the previous two years. In both 2019 and 20, Democrats who blocked the bill defended their votes in floor speeches, arguing that it is harmful in restriction on abortion. That's nonsense. In fact, the bill doesn't place a single limit on abortion procedures. Instead, it requires doctors to give, quote, the same degree of care to newborns who survive abortion that any other child born alive at the same gestational age would receive. While Planned Parenthood and other abortion advocacy groups allege that the Born Alive Bill compels doctors to provide unnecessary care to sick newborns, in reality it prescribes no specific kind of medical care. The Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act merely says that the medical care should be appropriate for the child's age and health condition. The specifics are left up to the doctor's judgment. Contrary to claims from abortion supporters, the Born Alive Bill is neither unnecessary nor redundant. Botched abortions and living abortion survivors are not a fiction. And no federal law currently prohibits neglecting such infants or expressly requires doctors to care for them. Nevertheless, these are the excuses Democratic senators offer when called upon to explain why they won't mandate medical care for all living infants. As none of these reasons for opposing the bill are based on fact, we are left to assume that the true reason for their opposition is far more insidious. Though it may never become law, the Born Alive Bill's true success is in exposing the hideous logic of those who defend abortion. If Democrats had agreed to protect infants who survive abortion, they would be acknowledging that at least a moment after birth, a newborn human being deserves protection. Such acknowledgement raises a frightening question. Why does that very same human being deserve no protection whatsoever the moment before birth or even during birth? If they were to acknowledge the humanity of a living newborn meant to have been aborted, they would expose the incoherent belief that the birth canal magically bestows personhood, that a matter of inches and seconds is all that determines whether a human being deserves legal rights. But the other choice is perhaps even more troubling. By rejecting the Born Alive Bill for the third time, Democrats have chosen once again to affirm the deadly logic of abortion, the belief that an unwanted child inside the womb or out of it Never gains rights at all. You see, that's the issue. So regardless of why they won't support the bill, none of the reasons are good. None of the reasons put them in a good light. They either have to admit that that this is a real life human deserving of rights and protection, or they have to say that a baby, even outside of the womb, laying on the table, has no rights, has no value, no humanity. You see, no matter where they fall on that spectrum, it, it doesn't paint them in a good light. We live in a in, in a world, in a society that that if if you're for instance my dad operates a dairy farm if a calf were to be born on that dairy farm and nothing happened let's say let's say uh, we we thought the calf was dead but the calf ended up being alive what would my family do in that situation they would do everything they can to secure the calf's life but in in the same scenario when it comes to humans you have folks actually saying, yeah, that baby has no rights even though it's out of the womb. This is troubling. This is what happens when you when you see politics, when you see these issues as just issues. You see when when you call it women's rights, when you call it abortion rights, when you when you when you look at it from that standpoint, then all you're caring about is winning the narrative and winning the argument. But if you would allow yourself to go, hold on, are are you telling me that a baby is living? Yes, they wanted the baby to be aborted, but the baby instead is living and now laying on an exam table. What should we do? Should we leave it to die? Or provide it the medical care that it deserves that any other baby in that same situation would receive? That seems like a no-brainer. You see, Kermit Gosnell was thrown in prison and and still is in prison because he was actually having babies be born and snipping their spinal cords and killing them after they came out of the birth canal. Kermit Gosnell was arrested and thrown in prison because he had baby body parts all over his building, because he had unsanitary conditions, because women actually lost their lives in that facility in in Pennsylvania. You see, anyone can agree that that having babies be born and snipping their spinal cords should mean you get locked up for life. But we can't even have folks that are in Washington, D.C. that claim to be for the vulnerable, that claim to be for those that, that can't stand for themselves, that claim to be for the voiceless in our society. We can't even have them come up and say, Yeah, if a baby survives an abortion, if it's a botched abortion and a baby is living, we need to protect that baby. They can't even bring themselves to say that. But in New Jersey, you can't slaughter a, a mama cow that has a baby. That is pregnant. No, you can't do that. You can't put highways in certain parts of our country because a turtle lives there. But you can allow for a baby to survive a botched abortion and let it lie and die on a table. Because they don't want to see that there are any holes in their narrative, in their position. Shame on us. You see, we've gotten to a place where politics, they can't even have rational conversations. This bill is the biggest no-brainer bill in the history of bills. It simply says, if a baby survives a botched abortion... It deserves protection. It, at the very least, deserves treatment. You see, it's not in a situation where the Virginia governor said, well, we're going to lay it on the table and we're going to wait and we're going to have conversations about how we should proceed. No, it's a life outside of the womb. And especially outside of the womb, do do these congressmen and senators not feel like they represent that human, that American You see how nonsensical this is? But that's where we are. Look, you don't have to be pro life and and anti abortion to say that a baby that survives a botched abortion deserves to be treated and, and cared for. That doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden against abortion. That means that, hey, I'm, I'm okay if a baby lives and we try to our best to keep it alive because we would want that for our, our siblings. We would want that for our parents. We would want that for our grandparents. We would want that for our neighbors. We would want that for our animals. But they can't bring themselves to want that for that little baby who has no voice, who has no lobbying arm, who has no uh, advocacy group that, that can that can fight for it, who, who, who has no no folks that are out there doing everything they can. I mean, we, we try. We don't get any playtime. We don't we don't get any airtime on national media outlets unless they're calling us crazies. You see, this isn't about using coat hangers in the alley to, to have abortions. This isn't about women's rights. This isn't about any of that. What if... The baby that survived the abortion is a female, and now is laying on the table. Is it? Does it not have women's rights? Is it now not now an individual in in deserving of care? You see, but these questions won't get to be answered because, or even asked, because they block the bill, which is what they do. And 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 why do they block the bill? They block the bill because they don't want to be on record. Because if you polled the country, heck, if you polled the world and said, hey, if a baby survives a botched abortion, should we do anything to protect that baby that now is, is out of the womb and, and gasping for air? Should we do what we can to, to keep the baby alive? I would bet at least 75% of the population would say, yeah, I think we should. Right? It seems easy enough. It seems like common sense. But, you know, we live in strange times. So I don't know if we'll see a day where this bill will finally pass. Well, we'll obviously, we need to see some changes in uh, how the Senate is made up. How the House is made up. But at the very least, we do need to bring attention to this. The public needs to know that this bill is not being supported. Now, they're, they're going to tell you that it's restricting abortion. It's not. This is saying if the abortion failed and the baby is alive, we should do something for that baby because it, it has rights. It's that simple. We'll talk more when we come back. Hello, future. So the conversation continues, as it always does, and we, we are still talking about some things going on in DC. And, and again, the reason I want to talk about that is because it's important to know. It's important to know. Look, I, I'll say this time blue in the face that we don't put, we don't put our hope in the Senate, the, the House, the White House, any of that, Supreme Court. We, we obviously want to see some shifts and we want to see some changes there. Uh, but we don't put our hope in, in, in those things, but we do pay attention. And that's why I wanted to end today here in a little bit with, with, uh, David French's article because I think it's important to putting that into perspective. But before we get there, I do think it's important that there are some folks in D.C. trying to make a difference when it comes to life and abortion. There are some folks doing doing what they can, uh, and and this is a you know some of that happening here. Is 48 senators promised to oppose any bill that funds abortion in a letter to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. 48 Republican senators have pledged to oppose any spending bill that does not contain the Hyde Amendment or other pro-life protections. Since 1976, Hyde has been added on a bipartisan basis of federal spending bills to prevent taxpayer money from directly reimbursing abortion providers for the cost of elective abortions. Today's letter, a copy of which was provided exclusively to the National Review, that's where you'll find this article, was spearheaded by Montana, Montana Senator Steve Daines who founded and chairs the Senate Pro-Life Caucus and its signatories include every GOP senator aside from Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. Susan Collins from Maine, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. It says this, quote, abortion is not health care. Rather, it is a brutal procedure that destroys the life of an innocent unborn child. The Hyde Amendment reflects a consensus that millions of pro-life Americans who are profoundly opposed to abortion should not be coerced into paying for or... Uh, incentivizing it with their taxpayer dollars, end quote. It goes on to cite a recent survey showing that most Americans, including a third of Democrats and those who call themselves pro-choice, oppose taxpayer funding of abortion. The letter follows a similar one from House Republicans to congressional leadership, spearheaded by the Republican Study Committee and its chairman, Indiana Representative Jim Banks. In that letter, 200 House Republicans pledged to vote against any legislation that fails to include Hyde. Quote, we have a message for Democratic leaders Schumer. We will vote to block any radical pro-abortion agenda, end quote. That includes any bill that undermines the Hyde Amendment and other long-standing pro-life protections. Because the letter received the signatures of 48 Republicans in the Senate, pro-life lawmakers have the votes to filibuster any legislation that isn't considered under reconciliation. Until 2016, politicians in both parties supported Hyde. As a conscious protection for pro-lifers. But in 2016, the Democratic Party platform explicitly demanded taxpayer funding of abortion, and nearly every politician competing for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination promised to oppose Hyde. No president has ever vetoed a spending bill over its inclusion of Hyde, and Barack Obama included the provision in his proposed budgets during his pregnancy, presidency. During his long political career, Joe Biden supported Hyde, calling it an important protection for pro-life Americans, and he reaffirmed that position as recently as 2019. But while running for president, Biden reversed himself and promised to back Democratic efforts to fund abortion. There's nothing unifying about using taxpayer money to fund abortions. That was said by Senator Ben Sass. Nancy Pelosi and other abortion zealots are trying to wage a culture war so that they can get Planned Parenthood sweet campaign cash, and that's wrong. End quote. Democrats are determined to use their razor-thin majorities in Congress to destroy pro-life protections like the Hyde Amendment, Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton said. Republicans are committed to stopping their schemes, so federal dollars are never used to harm unborn babies. A clear majority of Americans support the Hyde Amendment, Sass added. Joe Biden pretty much summed it up when he said that those of us who are opposed to abortion should not be compelled to pay for them. All 48 senators who signed today's letter have pledged to vote against the advancement of any legislation that would eliminate or weaken the Hyde Amendment or any other current law, law, pro-life protections, or otherwise undermine existing federal pro-life policy. You see, the Hyde Amendment is important because all it is saying is tax dollars will not go to pay for abortions. Again, not crazy. I mean... It's not. Look, when, when somebody says, "Look, we need to do more for health care and the government should pay for health care, I don't necessarily agree with that. but I at least see where they're coming from. I can see their their point of view. I may not agree with their point of view, but I can see their point of view. I do not see the point of view of someone saying that tax dollars should pay for abortions. I, I just don't doesn't make sense to me at all. I mean, why should we pay for that? I mean, I spend my professional life fighting to make life an option for, for women in our community. I lead an organization that that's what we do. We stand in opposition to abortion and we stand for life. So why in the world would I want my tax dollars to go to funding abortion? That's nonsense. It's crazy. But but apparently I'm the crazy one for saying I don't want my tax dollars to pay for that. And so here we are. So I appreciate the senators, the 48 senators and the 200 congressmen and women for signing that letter. I don't know what will come of it. I don't know if Biden will keep the Hyde Amendment or not. I would... I would guess that he went against, he kind of changed his tune on the Hyde Amendment to get elected. I don't know if he'll go as far as actually removing it, but who knows? I don't think he would do that, but my goodness, who knows? And so, and so, where are we when it comes to our tax dollars? And and it's the same thing about. You know, our our tax dollars, we we don't get a say in everything we do by our votes. But my goodness, I mean, it's not asking for much to say, hey, let's at least not let our tax dollars go to pay for abortions. Now, Now, some could argue, and I think rightly so, Planned Parenthood will receive, you know, half a billion dollars from the federal government. Now, they say they're not using that for abortion, but we know how budgets work. Right? I mean, if you, let's say you got half a billion dollars tomorrow and you were told, do not use this money. Do not use this money to buy a house. And you're like, okay, I'll use it to buy everything else. And then I'll use my other money to buy the house, but I can use the half a billion dollars to buy everything else I need. Well, wouldn't that half a billion dollars help you? ultimately help you buy that house even though you didn't spend a dime of it on the house? Of course it would. That's how budgets work. So so yeah, the the money currently may not be directly paying for abortions, but it is directly paying for the facility. It is directly paying for the staff. It is directly paying for the outreach. It's directly paying for a number of other things that allows them, the abortion industry, to to use their other funds to take care of abortion, like it, it absolutely is. You let all that money dry up, and you're going to see a change in the landscape. And on top of that, they're saying that our tax dollars should pay for abortion. They won't. They want people to just be able to go get abortions and not have to pay anything out of pocket at any point in time. The abortion industry could say we're not going to charge women for the abortion, but of course they're not going to do that. Right, I mean, if they really cared, if they really wanted to help, wouldn't they just provide it at no cost? Wouldn't they just step up and remove the obstacles themselves? Oh, if we don't get the Hyde Amendment removed, they're going to be in the dark alleys with coat hangers. No, you could just offer it at no cost, but you won't. Why won't you? Because it's a billion-dollar industry. That's why. We know that. It's the same way when when people tell me that I don't have a problem with the government raising the tax rate. I don't have the problem with, you know, let's say somebody says, I'm wealthy. I can afford to pay more in taxes. I don't mind if the government raises the taxes. Well, then pay more taxes. No one is telling you not to write the check. At any point in your life, if you want to pay more taxes to the government, all you got to do is cut the check. Just write it. Send it as a, hey, say I'm going to give a little bit extra this year. You can do that. No one's stopping you. And in the same way, no one's stopping the abortion industry from providing these services for free. But they don't want to provide it for free. Because they make way too much money. We'll talk more when we come back. People are crazy. So as we finish up today, we got this. This is the last long segment. I, I wanted to focus on an article that David French wrote, and and the reason I wanted to focus on that is is you know a lot of there. Look, if you're in, if you're familiar with conservative Republican circles, there's a lot of folks that have an issue with David French. There's some that that are all on the same page with David French, and and uh, look, we have inner uh squabbles all the time, but what David French said here is spot on. And and I think it's important. And it's important because David French has been on the front line. He's worked. He's he's participated in adoption with his own family. Uh, he he has cared for pregnancy centers, partnered with pregnancy centers. He gets it. And so I think his, his article is important, and, and I wanted to share it with you. And, and it starts like this. The longer I've been engaged in the quest to eliminate abortion from the U.S., the more I've become convinced that the core challenge rests not on the supply side, the availability of legal abortion access, but rather on the demand side. In other words, a nation or state that wants legal abortion will have legal abortion. And even in a nation or state that severely restricts abortion access, women who want abortion will find a way. In fact, I'd argue that the best explanation for the long-term decline in the abortion rate is primarily decreased demand. The available data indicates that America's abortion rate is now lower than it was when Roe was decided when abortion was illegal in most American states. If you read this newsletter, you've seen this chart before. It's important to show it again. Now, you can't see the chart, but the the chart shows a a pretty massive decline, and we talked about that decline uh, on this show as well. And at the same time as we saw the decline in abortion since 1973, we've seen a sharp increase of about 80-something percent of pregnancy centers opening during that same time period, and that's important to note. Though there is evidence that the abortion rate increased slightly in 2018, reporting on abortion rates tends to take time, the long-term trend is deeply encouraging. After an initial and expected surge in abortion rates after Roe legalized abortion from coast to coast, the rate has declined through every single American presidency, pro-life and pro-choice. The bottom line is clear. There is no reason for pro-life Americans to simply presume This 40-year positive trend will change in every reason to believe that the most effective forms of pro-life engagement can and will continue, even under a Biden presidency. There remains no barrier for pro-life Americans to love their neighbor and directly support mothers and children who face dire need. There is even an opportunity to enact legislation that can further ease the fears of young mothers and increase their confidence that they can raise and support a child. In the days and weeks since Biden's election, I've heard a number of Christians express a genuine anguish about the prospects for defending life during the Biden administration. Make no mistake, there is cause for deep concern about the administration's policy. Like Democratic presidents before him, he has reversed Ronald Reagan's Mexico City policy that prohibits foreign organizations that receive U.S. aid from providing abortion services or abortion counseling. Biden has also reversed his longstanding support for the Hyde Amendment, which bars the Medicaid program from funding abortions. Repealing this amendment would represent the first truly substantial change in federal abortion law in a generation and could result in tens of thousands of additional abortions per year. While reinstating the Mexico City policy will likely have to wait the next GOP president, pro-life Americans can preserve the Hyde Amendment now. In fact, Democratic efforts to repeal the Hyde Amendment suffered a blow when West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin told National Review that repeal would be foolish thus likely preserving the amendment through at least one more election cycle. But the purpose of this this newsletter from French isn't just to describe what a pro-life American should oppose during the Biden administration. It's also to highlight what a pro-life American can support. To understand what to support, it's worth remembering a remarkable Notre Dame study that took a deep dive in the way in which Americans truly understand abortion. The study wasn't a simple poll that asked respondents' opinions on a variety of abortion-related policies. Instead... Researchers conducted in-depth interviews of a representative sample of more than 200 Americans. The researchers did not disclose that abortion was the subject of the interviews when they recruited participants. I'd urge you to read the entire report from start to finish, but the results truly help us understand not just why abortion remains legal, but why women abort and why the abortion rate declines. The short answer is that large majorities do not wish to ban abortion. That the circumstances, including the financial circumstances surrounding a pregnancy, truly matter. And that even pro-choice respondents do not view abortion as a, quote, desirable good. In other words, though many Americans don't want to ban abortions, they also don't want to have abortions. Here's key language from the report. None of the Americans we interviewed talked about abortion as a desirable good. Views range in terms of abortion's preferred availability, justification, or need. But Americans do not uphold abortion as a happy event or something they want more of. From restricted to to ambivalent to permissive, we instead heard about the desire to prevent, reduce, and eliminate potentially difficult or unexpected circumstances that predicate abortion decisions, whether of relationships, failed contraception, lack of education, final financial hardship, or the like. Even those most supportive of, of abortion's legal uh, legality, nonetheless, talk about it as a hard, serious, not happy or benign at best. Stories from those who have had abortions are likewise. Harrowing, even when the person telling it retains a commitment to abortion's availability. Another segment of the report detailed how Americans think through questions of circumstances and support. It says this, Americans focus much of their attention on abortions, preconditions, alternatives and after effects. We heard compl- uh, contemplation such as what was the nature of the relationship between conceiving partners? Was it consensual? How did they approach pregnancy prevention, if at all? Was there sufficient knowledge about potential outcomes? What kinds of support, financial, relational, are available to to people facing unplanned pregnancies? What are the stages of prenatal development? What health situations would put a mother or baby at risk? What does it take to raise a child? What impact does having a child have on a professional aspirations or on a reputation or on permanent ties between conceiving partners? What role roles do or can men and women play in parenthood? How accessible is a choice like adoption? What are the conditions of children in foster care? This list of questions continues. The point here is that opinions on on a myriad of social issues and and, uh, personal decisions frame attitudes well beyond the procedural yes or no, or right or wrong of an abortion decision. For pro-life Americans, here's some good news. Through personal intervention, support for church ministry, support for pregnancy centers, and support... For effective public policy, you can directly impact most of the concerns outlined above. French has written before to urge pro-life Americans to redouble their personal commitment to supporting moms and babies. No presidential administration can stop you from volunteering at a pregnancy center. You can adopt. You can foster. You can give money to those working on the front lines to love mothers and children. These personal interventions are absolutely vital to preserving life in a nation that increasingly dislikes abortion but still refuses to ban it. But let's also talk about policy. Let's talk, let's talk Mitt Romney. Last week, the Utah Senator proposed transforming the child tax credit into a child tax allowance that could transform the financial condition of many Americans' poorest families. Under the Romney proposals, families would receive $4,200 per year per child up to age six and $3,000 per year per child between ages six and 17. Families would receive monthly payments and the payments would begin four months prior to the child's due date. Romney proposes paying for the tax allowance in part by repealing the state and local tax deduction. The allowance would also phase out the highest income levels. Uh, see. Some folks also have written in support of the plan, mainly on the grounds that it will make it easier uh, for people to start and expand their families. It also noted that it was softly pro-life. It also is perilous to predict whether a government policy not directly aimed at preventing abortions will have a pro-life effect, but ponder these projections uh, from... The Niskanen Center, it says that that it certainly would have an impact, that that it would have an impact in in bringing folks out of poverty. Put in plain English, the numbers mean that the Romney Child Allowance would reduce U.S. child poverty by roughly one-third and deep child poverty by half. Given that we know financial concerns factor into the abortion decision, it strikes me that the Romney proposal provides a promising vehicle for using public policy to promote life, even in a pro-choice administration. At least. Unless you think Romney's proposal is dead on arrival, here's a tweet from Joe Biden's chief of staff. Joe Biden's chief of staff actually tweeted it out and and agrees with it. Writing in New York Magazine, Eric Levitz declared Romney's child allowance plan better than Biden's. Vox's Dylan Matthew also argued that the Romney plan has some advantages over the Biden plan and noted that it's been praised by some rather surprising left-wing voices. I've long been deeply suspicious of arguments from the left that if pro-life Americans truly cared about abortion, that they'd support mainly left wing social welfare programs aimed at improving the lives and health of Americans most vulnerable citizens. I've been suspicious not because I disagree that an increased financial security or health security can ease concerns of expectant mothers, but because I'm often dubious uh the the proposed government programs will work as advertised. In this case though, French is convinced and I think others are convinced. And so the article goes on and on and on, but, but I would say this. Look, at the very least, folks are talking right now about some rational legislation that, that might be a benefit. So does that look like tax credits? Now people will go, well, what do you mean an allowance? Isn't that a universal basic income? Well, not necessarily. Because it, when you do your taxes, if you, if you are a parent, you can deduct for your children, and a lot of times, what happens is many folks, when they do their taxes and they add in the tax, the, the child tax allowance, and all of those things, they get a rebate. They get money sent to them. All this bill is saying is, instead, it's, it's raising it some, and instead of waiting till tax time to receive that money, you would get that money throughout the year in in a form of a check every single month. Now, now, that makes some people uncomfortable, especially conservatives. You saying, well, hold on, the, the government's going to send a check out once a month? Yeah, they may. And, and the author of these bills would simply say, what's the difference in doing that and sending a check out at tax time? In April or May or June or whenever you get your, your rebate. It's your money. And so at the very least, we need to have this conversation. At the very least, we need to talk about what this looks like. So for some families, that, that extra, I mean, you know, if you have three kids, you have four kids, and you're getting that check from the time they're born, even four months prior, which is an interesting concept, right? That, that even four months prior to they coming out of the birth canal, you would get a check which means we're recognizing their humanity, which means we're recognizing their heartbeat, which means we're recognizing they're a baby. But that's a story for another day. But for many families, that money will will be transformative. If they spend it right, if they if they handle the money right, it, it could do a lot of great things for that family and bring that child out of poverty, which would be an amazing thing. We'll talk more when we come back. What makes me who I am. So, as we finish up today, look, that, that, I know that last segment was quite, quite a long piece from David French. I would encourage you to go, to go find it and read it. Um, but, but what he ended with talking about the Romney plan or the Romney proposal or however you want to word it, uh, you know, Biden is, has presented that as well. Even, even in the, the most recent, uh, stimulus, the, the COVID plan that's coming out, the $1.9 trillion, Plan. What, what is factored into that is a one-year increase in the child tax allowance. And, and that the check would come monthly instead of at one time, uh, or, or instead of like a child tax credit at tax time. Now again, that's gonna make some folks uncomfortable. But don't just, don't just wipe it out of your mind because, oh, that, that's government check, that's government funding, that, that's, I'm against that because I'm conservative. All I'm saying is read the proposal. That's all. Because if, if at tax time, no matter how strong and conservative you are at tax time, what do you do? You list your dependents. Hey, I have, you know, for the Wood family, hey, we have four kids and then we're going to get the tax credit for that. And so we need to have this conversation. It's good that we're having this conversation. And so if, if we get to a place where we can celebrate life, and, and if we can get to a place where we can pull more children out of poverty, that's a positive thing. If we can get to a place where we recognize that even four months before the baby is delivered, that it's actually a baby, well my gosh, that's incredible news. And so don't, don't just, don't just say, oh nope, not doing it, that's a government check. I'm, I'm not, don't just say that. Now, now we may read the proposal and walk through it and, and look at it and, and, and come out on the side of, no, this isn't a good thing. But I've seen far too many conservatives come out in favor of it to simply go, well, hold on, that, that's not, that's just a government check. There's far too many conservatives that I respect that are coming out with, with some some interesting ideas when it comes to helping families in our country. You know, everybody everybody scoffed at Andrew Yang, who was running in the Democratic primary, for saying we need a universal basic income. Now, I don't necessarily agree with him. I don't think we need a universal basic income where every every American gets $1,000 a month. I, I don't think we need that. But but I do appreciate the fact that Andrew Yang is willing to have conversations. He doesn't just go around and, and badmouth and dog people that have an R beside their name or people that claim to be conservative. He just throws ideas out there and says, well, let's talk about it. Maybe what I have is not good enough. Maybe what I'm doing is wrong, but, but let's have a dialogue. Let's talk about it. That's how policy should work. We've even seen this with with what Romney came out with. You have people on the left going, well, hold on, Romney's plan is actually better than Joe Biden's plan. We actually like Romney's plan better. And so at the very least, we should bring ourselves together to read through it and walk through it. Now, will it be a good thing for the country? I don't know. Will it be a smart thing fiscally? I don't know. And we're going to talk about it more on this show moving forward because even with the stimulus plan that's coming up, you you know, if you do the math, a lot of families have already received quite a bit of money from the government since the pandemic started. And, And I would wager a lot of conservatives who are against government funding didn't send that check back. And I don't blame you. And so, moving forward, we need to have a conversation about what this looks like. Is there a plan in place that we can legitimately work to, to help get kids out of poverty, to offer some assistance to single moms, not to incentivize it, but to offer assistance. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but, but we can't be a, a, uh, We can't be a people that constantly, no matter what comes down the pike, we just say, absolutely not. We can't be in a place where just because they have a certain letter beside their name, if they come up with an idea, we just go, nope, terrible. Because currently, that's what we have. We have people on the left and people on the right that if the other side has a good idea, even if deep down we know it's a good idea, we won't allow ourselves to say that publicly because we don't want them to think that we agree with them. Folks, sometimes good ideas are just good ideas. And on the flip side, sometimes bad ideas are bad ideas, even if it's coming from somebody on our own team. Are we willing to call that out? Are we willing to to have those conversations? It's going to be an interesting time over the next few weeks and months as we see what this looks like. And, and it looks like this new stimulus bill that's coming up is going to kind of test the waters to that monthly allowance for parents and see what that looks like. So we'll at least get about a year to, to, to see did it help or did it not. We can study it and we'll know more. And we'll talk to you more next week.